Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is November 14th, 2023, and I'm grateful to be here with Dr. Yara Asi, one of FMEP's 2023 Palestinian non-resident fellows. We're going to talk about public health in the Gaza Strip before the current crisis and right now. A quick bio introduction. Dr. Yara Asi is assistant professor at University of Central Florida in the School of Global Health Management and Informatics and a visiting scholar at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights for Harvard University in her capacity as co-director of the Palestine Program for Health and Human Rights. In the last few weeks, she's written several new pieces about public health in Gaza. We're going to have those links on our landing page, but we wanna launch right in to talking about public health. So Yara, thank you so much for being here today. Thank I wanna, you for having me, Sarah Ann. I wanna ask you to start by just giving us some background. Tell us about public health in Gaza before the war. We know that Gaza had several different ruling authorities, authorities ruling over it in the past hundred years. And in the past 16 years, since Hamas came into government, Israel has imposed a blockade on Gaza. So can you tell us about the health system, the health infrastructure, the health services that existed in Gaza before this new war began? Newest war, I should say. Yes. So, you know, we've heard increasingly in the last few days that Gaza's health system has collapsed. But in reality, Gaza's health system has been on the verge of collapse essentially for 16 years. Um, ever since the blockade was instituted in 2007, it has significantly reduced quality of life, access to health care, access to health equipment and pharmaceuticals, access to adequate food and water and sanitation services, and access for patients who are unable to receive care in Gaza uh, to receive care either in Israel or the West Bank, um, all of which is controlled and restricted by Israel. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, Gaza has a public ministry of health, but it also has many hospitals that are funded and operated by NGOs or religious groups. Um, so those were functioning primarily with the, the support of foreign donors and aid. And so uh, was with anything that is supported by humanitarian aid, um, obviously not all needs are met. Not all needs are met, excuse me. And so um, for, for, for many years, uh, the health system in Gaza has been, uh, and the health workers in Gaza have been calling out for emergency help. And so um, I think that's important context that as we think about what has happened since October 7th, that this was not a functional um, sovereign health system by any means. Um, it was difficult to get medical training for medical staff. It is difficult to um, leave Gaza to receive specialty training. And so there were many specialties that were unavailable in the Gaza Strip. Considering the economic situation, many uh, or some who do train in medicine were unable to find jobs or well-paying jobs. And so leave Gaza, which left a physician and nurse shortage in the territory. There was a very limited number of hospital beds, about 2,500 for a population of 2.2 million beforehand. And doctors were primarily able to focus on delivering uh, short-term or emergency care. It was much more difficult for them to uh, support patients who had chronic health ailments or who needed uh, consistent and uh, added service 
Uh, so di access to dialysis, access to chemotherapy, access to other life-saving medications and treatments. Um, and so many patients have died in Gaza due to lack of care long before this. Um, and from previous bombings, we had many citizens of Gaza who are previous amputees who need consistent ongoing surgeries and treatments for their care. Um, we had uh, even again before this, a waterborne illness was among the top killers of children in the Gaza Strip. Gaza reports incredibly high infant and maternal mortality, which is, again, a, a broad indicator of health system functioning. And so uh, the health system in Gaza was in dire straits uh, long before this. And so it was no surprise that several weeks in, uh, we were told that the health system had and essentially has now collapsed. So thank you for all of that. So on, on this notion of the, the collapse of the health system, can you talk to us about like how, what this war has meant, what are the biggest impacts on public health? It almost feels absurd to ask that question, but I, I wanna ask you to lay it out for us in the most um, ex explicit and clear terms you can, please. Yes, so from the latest UN report update from just last night, um, November 13th, uh, they indicate that all but one of the hospitals in Gaza City and in Northern Gaza period are out of service um, as of last night due to lack of power, medical equipment, lack of oxygen, lack of food and water, constant bombardment. And in, in, in other hospitals like El Shifa, we had credible reports that snipers were shooting into hospitals. Um, you know, many of these hospitals are not just treating patients, but they're also hosting sheltering families who have fled their homes. Um, Shifa Hospital, which was the biggest hospital in the Gaza Strip and is located in the north, uh, reports that 32 patients, including three premature babies, have died due to power cuts and due to the poor conditions. Um, uh, hundreds of healthcare workers have been killed, both on the job and at home, sheltering with their families. Um, there are currently still around three dozen babies who need to be in incubators, uh, premature babies that are at imminent risk of death. Kidney dialysis patients are at imminent risk of death. Um, we are seeing now increased reports of risk of infectious disease and a complete inability to, to manage or deal with that, especially as people are crowding and sheltering and sanitation and water services have significantly decreased. Um, the calls for evacuation orders, of course, were impossible for patients, many of whom uh, were unable to move, or if they did move, as the, as the World Health Organization called, would call this a death sentence for these patients. Um, basically, doctors at this point are just able to give immediate emergency care, um, and often doing so with very few supplies. Uh, as many of the listeners may have heard, we have doctors performing surgery without anesthetics, without antiseptic, without proper surgical tools, without even light, you know, using the light of cell phones. Um, it is the conditions for a dire, dire humanitarian, human-made humanitarian catastrophe. Human-made humanitarian catastrophe. So you talked a little bit about, um, about displacement and about people taking shelter. And I want to ask you specifically about hospitals that function as safe havens for people who have fled their homes. Um, more than a million people in Gaza, I think it's now a million and a half, are, mm -hmm. are, are on the move. They're now displaced out of their homes. Um, 
how, how does it work for a hospital to function as a shelter? Yes, so many people, um, you know, many fled to hospitals for two reasons. One, their home or wherever they were sheltering was destroyed and they simply had no other public spaces to go. And two, many people now we know kind of wrongfully assumed that if I go to the hospital and shelter, I'll be safe there. They won't attack the hospital. The hospital is the last place where fuel is, 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 and, you know, there's some chance for entry of food and water. Um, so every time you see videos of these hospitals, yes, you see patients on the ground, you see multiple patients in gurneys, but you also see hundreds, if not thousands of people just on the floor on blankets with their children. Um, you know, children trying to play and have a little fun amidst all this. Um, you know, many of these people have nowhere to return to. Their homes have been destroyed or if they have fled to the south, they feel unsafe going back to the north at the moment. Or again, as, as much of the north has been destroyed, they have nowhere else to go. And this causes significant other layers of health and humanitarian challenges. Because again, when we look at, at indirect causes of death from war and displacement, like infectious disease risk, um, we are hearing absolutely alarming calls from people working at these hospitals that even non-patients, just people who are sheltering, simply because they are there are now reporting infectious disease, um, are reporting cholera, are reporting diarrhea, are reporting, um, you know, the risk for respiratory illness spread is very high, especially as winter approaches. Um, so yes, many of these people faced with kind of what feel like life or death decisions, even though they don't know, even if they flee, if they will be safe, um, they chose hospitals as kind of their last safe haven. And so the bombing of hospitals is not just physically destructive, but it adds this layer of mental and emotional insecurity because it's when you, when the last safe place is now a place of battle, you feel truly as though you are completely alone and left behind and there is no more safe place to go. Thank you. And we, and Israel called for Palestinians in Northern Gaza to evacuate Northern Gaza, to move South and for the, the hospitals to evacuate in Northern Gaza and um, including the largest hospital, Al Shifa, which you mentioned before. And, and the news today, November 14th is that Al Shifa and um, and another hospital in the north are basically surrounded, and that there is fighting right. all around them. And you mentioned um, reports of sniper fire into Al Shifa, or people being brought into Al Shifa with with bullet wounds from from snipers. Um, so I I wanted to ask you specifically, like, so evacuating hospitals. Can you tell us what that looks like? How is that done? Well, it's 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 typically not done, especially because many of these patients are non-mobile. Um, they may be unconscious. They may be um, attached to multiple life-saving equipment that, if they were disconnected, again would be a death sentence. Um, you know, when we think of this idea of well, if you drop leaflets or warn a hospital that they're about to be bombed and that's sufficient because they should just be able to pack up and go. I think any of us who have been in a hospital and seen hospitalized patients and seen just the sheer, um, you know, the complexity of what patient needs are, 
um, we recognize inherently that it is impossible to evacuate a hospital. And we're also asking this of regular medical workers and medical staff who themselves have been traumatized, not sleeping, have been working 24-7, who are themselves risking their own lives. And again, many have been killed. And we've also seen evacuation routes are not safe either. So even for people with the mobility to evacuate or who may have desired to evacuate, we saw many reports that people were too scared, even on the quote unquote evacuation corridors that were opened because many were attacked along the way. So it kind of creates this situation where you create fear for those staying. And again, in week one, doc, uh, Gaza's doctors, nurses, and paramedics said, we are not leaving our patients. We cannot leave our patients. And uh, medical professionals across the world should recognize that and should stand in solidarity with their colleagues in the Gaza Strip working in these unimaginable conditions. And we cannot consider a call to evacuate a hospital humanitarian in any sense of the word. It is um, just as much an act of violence, uh, of, of structural violence as, as any of the others that we have seen in Gaza. Thank you for that. I, I want to ask you um, a couple more questions. So we know that now, November 14th, the number of dead so far that has been counted is greater than 11,000. Um, the estimate is that it is mostly women and children. Um, and I wanted to ask you specifically, because this question keeps coming up about the numbers, how, how do we know Public health is, is is about statistics and counting and numbers. How do we know how many are dead, how many are injured? Who is doing that reporting? And how and why do we trust these numbers? Yes, so I that's a great question. Um, this has been obviously an issue of debate, especially once President Biden himself kind of questioned the numbers. Um, so first, I think it's important to note that we haven't received updated numbers in several days, simply because the Ministry of Health has said the situation has deteriorated so much that they can't even do accurate counts. Um, so that that's an indicator right there. Um, unfortunately, also, this is not the first time Gaza has experienced something like this. Of course, the level and scale of this is unprecedented. Um, but, um, you know, we have had historical precedent in terms of experiencing one of these assaults. We received numbers from local actors in the Gaza Strip. So this is people working at hospitals and morgues. Yes, some are affiliated with the Ministry of Health, but that is an insufficient accusation to claim that these numbers are incorrect. But importantly, the numbers that they have reported in the past have been verified uh, within one to two percent accuracy um, by the UN in all of these previous assaults. The US State Department and other political and humanitarian agencies have long used these numbers themselves and have never questioned them. And importantly, when this was first questioned by President Biden, the very next day, the Gaza Ministry of Health released a painfully long list with the name, ID number, and age of every single person who, who, who has, has been killed um, in an effort to kind of reclaim their credibility. Um, and it was, you know, devastating that they felt the need to do that. But of course, because they were questioned, um, they were forced to do so. Um, and still, there were people questioning the numbers and continue to do so. Um, but it's important to, to take away that historical precedent has shown us that there's no reason, no evidence to doubt these numbers. And just as anyone who has seen images and videos can probably surmise, 
these numbers do not seem out of step with the pictures and images that we're seeing in part in entire blocks, apartment buildings destroyed by airstrikes. Um, and there are countless hundreds or thousands trapped under the rubble. Um, so we we estimate, you know, once once there is a ceasefire, then the hard work of actually collating how many have died and how many can be claimed and identified begins. Um, so there is no reason to doubt these numbers. Again, these numbers have been used by every humanitarian agency prior to this. They had never been questioned before and without significant evidence. And we need to really stress that there is no reason to question them now. Thank you. I have another public, specifically public health angle question, which is that right at the beginning of the war, Israel announced that they were cutting off any entry of food, water, fuel, and electricity to the Gaza Strip. Can you talk to us about what that means from a public health standpoint to cut off food, water, fuel, and electricity? Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I, I will speak from that perspective, but I think any of us humans can recognize the potential health impacts of being cut off from these vital basic necessities. Um, so of course, lack of access to food. Um, we are seeing many more people, they're showing videos and pictures from grocery stores, even the, the food that that had been stored over the last few weeks or that some grocery stores were able to go into stocks. We're now seeing that that's almost completely gone. People are reporting that for breakfast, they're having a single piece of bread that they were able to find. Um, for many people who do find food or who are given a meal from an aid agency, if they're able to get one, they are sharing this one meal with every member of the family or they're prioritizing children or elderly or, um, you know, they're getting one of these meals per day and trying to stretch it throughout the day. Um, and this is going, I mean, lack of food is a, is a public health emergency. And, and you know, without an immediate ceasefire, we will see increased risk for famine and malnutrition, and especially in newborns who no longer have access to formula, who's maybe too um, traumatized to properly nurse from their mother or the mother is too traumatized to the point where she's not able to produce milk. Um, we will see stunted growth and potentially other health ailments long-term in these children. We, we, we don't know the potential health effects of all of that yet. It depends on how far this goes. But for now, we are absolutely seeing dire food emergency. Um, but, you know, even more so than food, people need water to live. Um, prior to this, more than 90% of the water in the Gaza Strip was non-potable, which means it's not suitable for drinking. Um, and so much of Gaza's drinkable water was either trucked in, literally on trucks, um, or sent through pipes um, through Israel. And so when these um, pathways were cut off, and now we're seeing some aid trucks delivering uh, aid, much of which includes water, but it's completely insufficient for the population. Um, so we're hearing stories of people drinking seawater, drinking well water, drinking whatever water is maybe still dripping from their pipes. Again, rationing water, sharing water. If you find a bottle, you save it for the day. Again, this a few more days of this will be significant humanitarian crisis. And if we couple that with people drinking water that is not clean, um, then the, the risk of, of course, waterborne illness spreads. And then once 
we have that in a small pocket of the population, it does not take much for it to spread very quickly. And this is particularly deadly for children. And uh, let's we need to emphasize that as well. Um, the cutting off of electricity um, is one of the most immediate threats to health access. So, so food and water, you know, basic necessities, but now talking about access to healthcare, the cutting off of electricity uh, really dampened the ability um, for Gaza's paramedics and, and, and medical workers to offer care. Um, so as, as because Gaza is unfortunately not used to electricity cuts, many hospitals and other facilities have generators that run on fuel. Um, prior to this, there were dozens of trucks of fuel to Gaza per day. And so the cutting off of fuel um, now we're to the point where many hospitals are reporting that even after calling community members for any drop of fuel that they may have had left in their home or in their shop to bring it to the hospital as kind of a, a site of, 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 you know, emergency that needs fuel, um, all those fuel sources are now being tapped out. And so um, that's why we're seeing these newborns taken out of their incubators because they can no longer run the incubators. And that's why we're hearing of ICU patients dying because the equipment that was keeping them alive has no more electricity to run. Um, and so again, without an immediate ceasefire and uh, you know, re-allowing again, the entry of un un completely sustainable fuel and returning on the electricity, we're going to start seeing many of those who are hospitalized, who were even hospitalized before October 7th for an un related health ailment will also start to die as well. Um, and so cutting off these services, you know, from the beginning, public health, um, the medical community was, this was among our most emergent concerns that it's not going to take very long for this to deteriorate extremely quickly if the siege is not completely lifted. And um, despite what we're hearing of this entry of some trucks, it's been completely insufficient to meet the population, 2.2 million people. Um, so in any other circumstance, we would very easily see this and call this a public health crisis. And usually you don't see this to this extent unless there's been some sort of widespread natural disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, a tornado that would take all this infrastructure out. Um, but in those cases, typically we see the ability for humanitarian workers and aid to immediately come in and try to fill gaps. Um, so when you couple the lack of access to services with the destruction, it is the perfect recipe for um, untold public health crises. Thank you. So I, I, um, I wanna ask you one more question for now. Um, which is if if a ceasefire were declared today, what would be the priorities for um, taking care of people? What are the first priorities? What needs to happen immediately? Well, unfortunately, now with so much damage and destruction to Gaza's hospitals, it's no longer just this or, or and homes. It's no longer just as simple as, you know, the bombing stops and now people are able to go back. Um, there's there's nowhere for many of these people to go back. And there's, you know, these hospitals need sustained significant aid to rebuild and restock before they're able to provide care. So for patients with highly traumatic injuries or that need advanced surgeries, um, for the time being, they will probably need to receive these services elsewhere. And we're already seeing that some, but not all of these patients were evacuated to Egypt to receive care. And undoubtedly, if Israel allows 
more people to leave that need humanitarian intervention immediately. Um, these people can can just no longer get that care in Gaza. They will need to go elsewhere, um, but we need to ensure that they have guarantees to be able to return to Gaza once they receive that care. Um, we will need the complete rebuilding of Gaza's health system. And as, as um, broad and, and intimidating as that sounds, that is what is needed at this point. Israel has um, not just the hospitals themselves, but the roads to the hospitals. Um, ambulances have been destroyed. Um, again, many irreplaceable health workers have been killed. You know, this is not just People, you can't just bring people in to fill these gaps, especially some of these were highly skilled, highly trained plastic surgeons, burn surgeons, um, child cancer doctors. These are specialties that are incredibly difficult to train for in Gaza. And so these people are killed. They're not coming back. And so we will need sustained support in terms of providing medical care to those who remain in Gaza um, with the long term aim of, again, rebuilding Gaza's medical schools, medical facilities to the point where they can start to begin to put the pieces of the health system back together. Um, of course, with the ceasefire immediately, we need to see um, a significant and sustained amount of aid being able to enter Gaza and not just in the South because people still remain in the North sheltering. As I said, many were too afraid to flee. So we need aid that is able to be distributed all throughout Gaza. Um, of course, we need physical security to do that. So we can no longer, it's not just a matter of ending airstrikes, but we're hearing you know, reports from these snipers. We're hearing all sorts of other reports from Israeli troops on the ground. We need guarantees that these people that do return to these areas will be protected and can start this hard process of rebuilding. Um, as has happened many times before, Gaza will need an unprecedented aid package to not even um, rebuild fully, but just to start to get back to what it was before, which, as I said earlier, was already in an insufficient state. Gaza has never been fully rebuilt after any of these past assaults. And this has, again, been the most destructive. So we have no idea the, the, the level of money, of energy, of access to Gaza that humanitarian agencies will need to, to kind of get these processes rolling again. And we still don't even know if there's a ceasefire, whether Israel will allow these other things to enter at a sustained pace. Will they still block things from entering? Will they still block people from exiting? There's there's so many unknowns that even when it, when a ceasefire comes, which we were hoping will be very soon to at least stop this immediate trauma. We will need a significant global effort to help Gaza get back on its feet in terms of healthcare, and we will need expedited import of medical equipment, of food infrastructure. You know, we've heard that bakeries were bombed, water treatment facilities were bombed. So it's not just a matter of fixing up hospitals; all civilian infrastructure needs to be fixed. We need to guarantee that people have shelters and homes to return to. We can't have people living in tent cities either in Gaza, in the Sinai, or in anywhere else. You know, this is not adequate conditions for health. Um, so people not only need to be able to access hospitals and healthcare, but they need to be able to access all the determinants of health um, just to get back to baseline. And then think about all of the mental health trauma that everyone in the Gaza Strip has experienced. You know, how do we even begin to respond to that? Um, again, it will need to be an unprecedented response. And I hope that the world, um, you know, the international community that has thus far supported this destruction 
um, is as supportive of the reconstruction effort that this destruction has necessitated. And that the ceasefire comes immediately yesterday. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for all of that. I, I, um, I just want to remind our listeners also that it was just a couple of months ago where you held a really extraordinary webinar about mental health in Gaza uh, based on a two-year research project done by the Gaza Community Mental Health Program and Physicians for Human Rights Israel. It was a shared project and it was really an extraordinary discussion and conversation about trauma in Gaza, uh, trauma yes. and mental health. And um, we'll have a link to that on the homepage also, homepage of this of this podcast. And Yara, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We will have you back on soon for another update. And um, I'm just so grateful for your your insight and your expertise. So thank you. Thank and, you, Sarah Ann. And I hope next time we talk, we will be in a post ceasefire uh, period of this catastrophe. Me too. Me too. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out our website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast, for lots of other rich content related to Palestine and Israel. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you can stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Bye.